Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. On today's show, we'll discuss recent rulemaking on remote inspections of broker-dealers and an update from OC on deficiencies seen in advisor branch exams. For our interview segment, we welcome in SEC and FINRA enforcement guru, Brian Rubin, for a deep dive into recent trends from the regulators and what to look out for in the future. Speaking of enforcement, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of the Outtake series, where today's focus will be on the proper allocation of business expenses. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, it's all about the branches. On the Fender side of the house, the SRO recently proposed a rule change that would allow member firms to complete their inspection obligations remotely through calendar years 2020 and 2021. The rule change was necessitated by concerns related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Under Rule FINRA 3110, the proposed temporary rule would permit the use of remote inspections to satisfy the obligations set out by 3110C, 1A, B, and C that require each member to conduct an annual office inspection. Rule 3110.17 also would provide that a member firm, one, amend written supervisor procedures, two, impose additional supervisor procedures if red flags are identified during the remote inspection, and three, maintain centralized records that help identify the remote inspection and any such imposed additional supervisory procedures. Comments on the rule must be submitted no later than 21 days after publication in the Federal Register. So what are the practical takeaways here? Well, I I think the biggest one, and the one that I would certainly take away, is that if if this works out reasonably well for the two-year period, I think regulators will really have to start to give some serious focus as to extending the relief permanently, even if the virus has ceased to be a material threat. On the SEC side of the House, the Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations recently observed certain compliance deficiencies for investment advisors with branch offices in geographically dispersed operations. The risks associated with multi-branch advisors were first highlighted in OC's 2016 examination priorities, published in January of that year. Later in the same year, however, in December, OC actually published a risk alert indicating that there would be a special examination initiative, the aptly named Multi-Branch Advisor Initiative. These advisors continue to be an area of interest for examinations because, one, they often advise retail clients, and two, they usually have very unique risks and challenges that are related to the design and implementation of their compliance programs, specifically the oversight of the advisory services provided through those remote offices. While the examinations under the Multi-Branch Advisor Initiative were concluded in 2018, OC has continued to monitor industry trends and practices, including telework conducted from dispersed remote locations, and has provided these observations to its colleagues in the Division of Investment Management. I'll add anecdotally here, it's very likely that the staff in the Division of Investment Management had many of these observations in mind when, earlier this year, it indicated that it would not recommend enforcement action if a firm did not update its Form ADV in order to list the temporary teleworking addresses of all the employees that were working from home at the time as a result of COVID-19. You can find that under Section 1F of the FAQs. So in the risk alert published this month, OC highlighted multiple implementation issues related to the Advisors Act compliance rule. Specifically, they identified deficiencies related to, one, policies to limit a supervised person's ability to process client withdrawals, deposits, or change of addresses, 
disclosure of fees and other material information in marketing and advertising, client communications, etc. And finally, on the portfolio management side, they also noted deficiencies, including the oversight of investment recommendations and trade allocations. In addition to listing these deficiencies, however, OC also observed the following practices that improved compliance at these multi-branch advisors. Number one, they talked about consistent and uniform oversight policies and procedures that would stem across all branches in three primary areas, often the stalwarts of the retail wealth management space. These include, one, the approval of marketing and advertising, two, fee billing, and three, trading activities. In addition, OC recommended that folks do periodic compliance testing or reviews at these branch offices. Again, compliance and legal practitioners should try to get in there at least annually and make sure that the place is still standing. Three, they talked about policies for examining the disciplinary history of a supervised person during the hiring process. I would also add anecdotally that I think this would be particularly important if you're bringing in somebody who might have a heightened supervision status. And finally, they would say, continue that compliance training, especially for employees at that branch branch office where you can help tailor or curate your training and education to specifically fit the branch areas of operations. As we move into the interview portion of today's episode, the focus of our discussion is going to be on enforcement. And with us today, I am very excited to welcome in an expert on both the SEC and FINRA enforcement side of things, Mr. Brian Rubin. Brian is the Washington office leader of the Evershed Sutherland Litigation Group and the head of the firm's Securities and Exchange Commission FINRA and state securities enforcement practice. With more than 20 years of experience in federal securities laws, uh, first prosecuting and, and now defending, Brian represents clients being examined, investigated, and prosecuted by the SEC, FINRA, and other self-regulatory organizations and states. He's a former NASD, now FINRA, Deputy Chief Counsel of Enforcement and Senior Enforcement Counsel at the SEC. And he, he really brings an insider's perspective to defending broker-dealers, investment advisors, investment companies, public companies, asset managers, and individuals in examinations, investigations, enforcement proceedings, litigation, arbitrations, and in counseling. Brian obviously has a, a wealth and depth of experience of which we are, are very fortunate uh, to, to have him with us on the show today. Brian, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So let's get started. I know this is the time of the year, really, when... Uh, we start to see some numbers uh, um, from both FINRA and the SEC start to creep out a little bit, knowing that usually many of those final numbers uh, maybe don't come out until either late in Q4 or early Q1 of 2021. Have we seen any of the preliminary numbers on the enforcement side of things? And is there anything inside those numbers that that you think we can start to glean where where you say, you know, hey, this is significant or maybe this isn't? Yes. So the SEC uses a fiscal year, which ends September 30th. FINRA uses a calendar year ending December 31st. On the SEC side, we've had some preliminary numbers discussed by the chairman of the SEC, as well as the head of enforcement. And from their speeches, we have heard that with regard to penalties and financial sanctions, we are looking at record numbers. 
The number of cases, however, is down. They brought about 700 enforcement actions during the fiscal year compared with over 800 during the prior two years. On the FINRA side, as a lot of folks who are listening know, uh, Evershed Sutherland does a detail analysis once or twice a year regarding FINRA sanctions. We look at the sanctions, we slice and dice the data in different ways to look for trends. We don't have the numbers yet, but preliminarily, based on the numbers that we've looked at, it looks like the number of cases has increased, the number of fines have increased, and the amount of restitution has also increased compared to the past year. Um, about a week ago, I looked at the numbers through September 30th, and in terms of the AWCs, the settlements, they're up about 15%. Wow. Wow. Is there anything in some of those preliminary numbers where you know you mentioned how your firm is putting together some of kind of the the background on the trends and the other stuff that you all are seeing. Are there one or two things specifically? I mean, I know you mentioned there's been in kind of an increase in cases. Are there any trends in the specific areas that those cases are are you know that those cases are taking a look at? At this point, no. Um, as we'll talk about in, in a while, I think given the market volatility, the pandemic, we will see different types of cases brought in the next two or three years because it takes two or three years before we do see enforcement actions because it takes a while to investigate the cases. Got it. Got it. So while certainly, you know, I think both the SEC and FINRA, and actually we've talked about kind of their efforts uh, on, on this podcast before where, you know, really in the last six, seven months, um, both organizations have pushed out a lot of really great content to try to assist firms that are, you know, looking to navigate these relatively tumultuous times and also to help investors, right? To, to warn them about pandemic frauds, right? And other items that, that may be, you know, starting to crop up there. Would you say that there are, um, you know, some specific areas as, as it relates to the pandemic? If you had to put your thumb to the wind, looking out a couple years now on you know where you might see some of those enforcement actions starting to take shape are, are, are there you know two or three areas maybe that, that you think in a couple years we're very likely to see a lot of enforcement actions sure there's been a lot of market volatility and i expect that's going to increase so the question is were the investors aware that the products they invested in could increase or decrease substantially. We may see a further downturn in the market, in which case, again, were the investors aware that there was a risk of a downturn? Because we have been looking at uh, a market that's performed well over the past 10 years. So there may be a mismatch between the expectations of the investors versus what the firms were saying or omitting to say. So I think that's one issue. We've already seen, particularly on the SEC side, a lot of fraud actions that they've brought in connection with firms touting false products with regard to vaccines, curing COVID, um, market instruments that they've touted incorrectly as well. So we'll likely see cases related to that. 
in addition, and I know we're going to get to that, um, in two, three years, I expect we will see enforcement actions related to Reg BI as well, because firms needed to start uh, implementing that June 30th. Firms have been examined already. Those will continue. And I think in, again, the next two or three years, we'll see enforcement actions stemming from the new rules. Yeah. Yeah. That, that- that's great. And I certainly appreciate you kind of giving the nod to the Reg BI. That, that was definitely something I was I was really hoping to kind of talk with you about. I know, as you mentioned, a lot of times on the enforcement side specifically, the investigations take a lot of time and, and the proceedings can be kind of, you know, a year, two years after the fact. We, we are obviously still very early into the effective period of regulation best interest. But are there you know, specific things that, that you all are hearing about or, or that you are seeing as it relates to maybe, again, maybe the, the enforcement proceedings haven't started yet, but you can start to see the trajectory of where those might be going as it relates to Reg BI. All of our clients are complying perfectly, so the answer is no. As you know, the SEC and FINRA had a roundtable recently where they highlighted some of the deficiencies that they are seeing. And both of the regulators said they're not going to bring gotcha cases at this point in time. They just want to see if firms are reasonably trying to comply. So at this point, I don't see anything. I can read the tea leaves and I expect to see certain types of cases based on what we've seen before. So, for example, Reg BI is really sort of suitability plus or fiduciary minus or best interest. So, I expect that we will see cases similar to the suitability cases that we've seen in the past in that the reps and sometimes the firms may not have made proper recommendations with regard to their customers, they might not have placed their customers um, or made recommendations consistent with the best interests of the customers considering costs and all the rest of this stuff. So that's one area. Second, I expect that we'll see disclosure type cases where firms omitted material facts dealing with their relationships or conflicts. So again, similar to cases that we've seen in the past with regard to, for example, sales literature, the third issue, which actually was highlighted at the roundtable, we will likely see cases against firms having inadequate policies or procedures or failing to enforce their policies or procedures adequately. Uh, fourth, we'll see record keeping failures. Part of Reg BI amended 17A3 and 17A4 with regard to record keeping requirements for the collection of information provided to customers or received from customers in the past. We've seen worm cases dealing with record-keeping requirements, so I think it's likely we'll see those. The fifth issue is delivery. During the roundtable, they talked about using vendors for electronic delivery, and firms have to adequately supervise the delivery of the required information. And again, in the past, every two or three years, we see cases where firms didn't properly deliver prospectuses, for example. So I, I think we may see cases in that space. The other thing to think about is, even though it's an SEC rule, because FINRA 
primarily is the primary regulator for broker dealers. I think we're more likely to see FINRA enforcement cases enforcing Reg BI or their version of the rule as opposed to SEC cases. In the past, we've seen a limited number of SEC enforcement cases dealing with issues like suitability, and they really bring it as, as a fraud case. Now they'll be able to bring it in connection with Reg BI, but I, I think it's really going to be primarily FINRA. That's great. That's great. No, thank you for that, for all that additional color. Let, let, let's turn a little bit towards a, an issue where sometimes maybe it doesn't always feel as though um, th- there is as much cohesion, and that is the uh, the issue of CCO liability. And I know um, this was something that, that came up recently. Certainly, it's a part of you know many enforcement actions at different times. During the recent NSCP National Conference, SEC Commissioner Purse even, even talked about this a little bit. You know what. What have you seen as it relates to CCO liability that that you think maybe is is indicative of where the regulators are right now and kind of how they view it? A few years ago, I think the industry was significantly concerned about the issue. There were a couple or a few cases highlighting the issue. And the concern is that everybody wants CCOs to be part of the solution and not viewed or treated as antagonistic. You want them to encourage compliance. You want them to participate in compliance. You don't want them to second guess. So there were some cases, there were a lot of speeches and a lot of articles on the issue. Commissioner Gallagher several years ago said, we should be encouraging compliance personnel to run toward problems not run away from them and we shouldn't threaten them with liability for trying to be part of the solution. And and I think that's the overall goal. So there are a few things. Sometimes CCOs wear multiple hats and they act with a business function. And where that's the case, and if they mess up on the business side or the supervision side and the business side, it makes sense to charge them. And those cases have to be thought of separately and differently from the pure compliance function cases. The reality is that it is fairly rare that chief compliance officers are charged for the role as chief compliance officers. There are a number of cases where AML compliance officers are charged, and that is for a specific function. My concern, or at least one of my concerns, is that both the SEC and FINRA bring a fair number of cases against firms where the firms don't have adequate policies and procedures. And ultimately, the CCO is more or less in charge of that function, either pursuant to rule or pursuant to the firm's own policies and procedures. Occasionally, compliance officers get charged in connection with those inadequate policies and procedures. And intellectually, it's hard to sort of draw a line and think about why is this compliance officer charged for this firm's bad behavior? But for all of these firms, arguably same kind of bad behavior, why aren't the chief compliance officer charged? I would draw the line more often that the chief compliance officer should rarely, if ever, get charged because they are dealing with business folks 
who say we need the policies and procedures this way. They're dealing with business folks who allocate the resources. They may not have adequate ability to institute changes, even though they are ultimately on the hook. So that's sort of where, where my primary concern is with regard to these issues. I think everybody is aware that it's a hot button issue. And the fact that Commissioner Peirce spoke about it this year, and I think last year, or the year before as well, shows that it's front and center and that everybody is focusing on it. And on the rare occasions where there are enforcement cases against compliance officers for purely compliance functions, everybody is looking carefully at the issue to try to figure out what happened and to try to make sure that they don't step into the same issue. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that perspective. And and I, I would totally agree with you. I, I think in general, so many of the chief compliance officers, so many of the, the compliance officers, the legal practitioners that are in this space are legitimately trying to draw interpretations and do the right thing when it comes to how they view the different rules from both the SEC and from FINRA. And I think being able to support those efforts in a way where it does uh, recognize, I think, some of that th their valuable contributions to the industry as a whole. In real, I've mentioned this in the very first episode of the podcast, which is that you know ultimately compliance is here to help elevate the services that our firms provide their respective clients, right? And so we want to be able to reward those folks that are that are part of that process to help elevate those services. So really appreciate that. Yeah, that, that's a good point. On the other hand, if compliance officers mislead the SEC staff or FINRA staff or produce bogus documents in connection with requests, that's an issue and that should be dealt with severely. Right. But, I, you know, I, I think you're right. I think ultimately the compliance officer should be elevating the role of the firm in terms of how they treat their clients and how they deal with regulatory requirements. That's fantastic. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'm I'm going to I'm going to brag on you a little bit if I can Brian, which is that for those um, who um, haven't seen a uh, an issue of NSCP currents recently, you have been missing some absolutely fantastic content from Mr. Brian Rubin, who, while his technical expertise in SEC and FINRA enforcement is, uh, is absolutely apparent uh, from you know, today's call, what, what you don't necessarily hear in today's episode is what an incredible writer and author Brian is. And, and I think if, if I could maybe add to that, and then I'd love to hear a little bit about your kind of interest in writing and, and how that started, but is also a very avid TV and movie watcher as well. <laughs> <laughs> there are occasionally books and magazines as well and newspapers, but uh, the, the primary focus that, that you're referring to, we've been trying to add pop culture themes to the articles that we've put out on enforcement issues. And I think it's easier to gravitate toward movies and TVs on occasion, but we have done um, articles, not for currents, but the girl with the SEC FINRA tattoo was one of the articles that we put out and that was on compliance officer liability. Yeah. Yeah. No, you do great. When I, there was another recent one that was about Seinfeld and the, the article about nothing, I think was another, another yes. recent addition. 
Well, I, I know that I, you know, personally, and, and I know that I speak for many of, of the, uh, the NSCP members that just we so appreciate all of your fantastic articles and, and really the ability to make, you know, compliance entertaining. It's not, it's not always known as the sexiest of, of all subjects. So uh, for you to be able to add some appeal to it, I think is very much appreciated. Well, thank you very much. But you're not the only person in your family that, that dabbles in the arts, from what I understand. A little birdie told me that um, that you have a, a son who's also very interested in the in the television and film uh, kind of industry. Is that right? Yeah, I have my oldest son, Sean, is studying filmmaking at UNC School of the Arts. Um, he's a freshman now, so he has been making films and loves doing it. And I think he's very good. And you could Google on YouTube, <laughs> Sean Rubin, U-N-C-S-A, and look at some of his most recent pieces. That, that's fantastic. Thank you. I'm sure that, again, that'll be a, uh, a welcome break for many of our compliance officers working <laughs> remotely, working from home these days. Take a quick side note, grab a bite to eat and, and go check out <laughs> one, of those, one of those films. <laughs> and our other son, Nate, is also very creative and academic. Don't know what he's going to do yet. And my <laughs> wife, Jody, is as well. So you can't, go, you can't Google them yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But, uh, but that's good to hear that certainly uh, they, they, uh, they obviously picked up some of their father's talents on that, <laughs> side, that side of the house. So, Brian, really, really appreciate you joining us on, on the show today. Have a great uh, uh, week and weekend and look forward to having you back on the show here at some point. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Today's final segment features another installment in the Outtake series. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, if compliance were a TV show, think of this as the bloopers reel, where we look at humorous, if not unsettling, activities carried out at financial services firms that hopefully provide us all with a roadmap of what not to do when facing a similar situation or trying to execute a similar compliance function inside our respective firms. Essentially, leave these activities on the cutting room floor and outside your compliance program. In today's installment of Outtakes, I'd like to talk to you about the allocation of business versus personal expenses. Look, let's start off with the good news. The good news is that regardless of how you allocate personal or business expenses, you're going to get some crazy great credit card points. And if there's one thing I know that can unite a divided nation, it's that credit card points are awesome and you should use them to get awesome stuff. But when it comes to running your compliance program, it doesn't matter how many points you rack up. You should always make sure you are able to effectively separate business from personal expenses. In a recent settlement from October of this year, FINRA entered into a letter of acceptance, waiver, and consent with a firm and an individual who served as its CEO, CCO, FINOP, and sole owner for, among other things, inaccurate classifications of certain personal expenses as business expenses. This caused inaccurate focus reports and inaccurate books and records. The CCO CEO was suspended for one month and was fined $10,000. In addition, the firm itself was fined $10,000, and both the individual and the firm were fined jointly and severally for another $10,000. Essentially, the CEO paid for the firm's expenses through the firm's checking account or charged the firm's business expenses to his personal credit cards, and he personally determined which charges to his personal credit cards were, quote, business expenses. He then paid for those charges using the firm's bank account. Moreover, the firm's general ledger 
did not itemize the firm's business expenses charged to his personal credit cards and recorded those payments on the firm's general ledger as either travel and entertainment expenses or office expenses. He improperly characterized over $152,000 of personal expenses as business expenses, resulting in the firm paying for $152,000 of personal expenses that did not relate to the firm's business or customers. This included things like gas, groceries, vacation dining, hotel stays, and sporting events. Some of the best point makers, for sure, but not the right expenses when it comes to labeling those as business expenses, and it also led to a lot of inaccurate reporting. And if you're asking yourself, well, shouldn't have this been covered in the WSPs? Congratulations, you're right. Here, however, the firm's WSPs did not address what business expenses employees could be reimbursed for or require employees to submit any documentation describing the business purpose for each expense. The firm also did not determine whether expenses had been improperly charged to the firm. Due to these supervisory deficiencies, the firm could not reasonably determine whether the payments the CEO recorded as, quote, business expenses were accurate. So what are the practical takeaways here? BD firms can be sanctioned if they misclassify expenses. So don't let your desire to rack up those miles take your eye off the prize when it comes to your compliance program. While this case may appear to be extreme, firms can be, shank- can be sanctioned for even less serious offenses, and information on how and why firms pay for expenses can be critical when regulators assess the financial condition of firms. Finally, be careful when someone inside your firm is wearing multiple hats, especially at the C-suite level. The regulators may take the position that the fox is watching the hen house, and firms should consider implementing better internal controls and additional checks and balances. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Brian Rubin, for his excellent take on SEC and FINRA enforcement matters. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to compliance and to listen and learn more.